topic, but I'm excited. To chapter 8 is where we're going to be. And, um, one of the things that we difficulties when we're going through a season of whatever, uh, that it's, it's important for us to go through uh, and not around. And this was sort of the big thing last week. Not trying to avoid life's difficulties when they come, but somehow finding the strength and the courage to walk through them is really, really important. Um, I said this last week. I'll say it again. One of the things that separates us from the poor is that we can finance our avoidance of life's problems. The poor cannot do that. The poor just have to walk through it, but we can sort of finance our way around it. We can pay for counseling or we can pay for alcohol. Either way, it's a solution for us. Or we can pay for just that outfit that'll make us feel better, or we can pay for that new album, or we can pay for that new car, like whatever it is, or we can just pay for a night out or a weekend away. You just got to get away. So it's like, you know, that's why it's 90% of the reason I got off Facebook was everybody saying, I just need the weekend. I was just like, I'm tired of that. So uh, delete my account. But among other things, um, mostly foot pictures on the beach. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Um, nothing against your feet or the beach, but together it just doesn't work. Um, but we can finance our avoidance. Does that make sense? Like we can find ways to just pay for some temporary relief of things. And it's important that when we're going through life's difficulties, that all through the Bible, we find God inviting us not around those things, but through those things. And I think what happens is we feel like when we're going through them, there's this real sense in which God's presence seems more like an absence. Are you with me on that? Like his absence seems much more real than his presence. And that can be very difficult for us if we're stuck in that place where it feels like God isn't with us. And usually when we're going through things like failure or loss, grief, suffering, or today guilt and shame, it feels like uh, God might not be with us. It feels like there's something, uh, his presence is definitely not as real as what his absence feels like. And so one of the things that we're learning in this verse here from Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk, what, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are, say that word, with me. You're with us. God's with us. It's like one of the great things about the church gathering is that when we come together, there ought to be a sense in which we feel that. That's why we get together. It reminds us that God is with us. We'll take communion at the end as we do each week. Um, and that's a reminder, too, that God's with us in this community and that he is not somewhere else because life is tough, because life has been difficult uh, or will get difficult again. There's always a cycle to life's difficulties. You're either, and you can resonate with this, you're either in a difficult season or you're just coming out of one. And these are the, this is the part you hate. Or you're going, to go into an, you're going to go into another one. Like, that's just the cycle, is it not? Like, every time we exit one, we're like, okay, cool, I'm free. I can, I can, I'm out. But all of us know that we're going to go back into another one. And then we're going to spin right back through that cycle the rest of our lives. Sorry, that's what we're going to do the rest of our lives. And we're just going to spin through this, going through these times where it's very difficult for us. And, um, but God invites us to go through those things with us. And I love this text because it's a nice image that when we're walking through something, God isn't like on the ledge going, come on, you can do it. I'll be on the other side. I'll drop a ladder. Like he's, he's in there with us. This is the image that he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't mean, by the way, that the valley of the shadow of death gets any easier. 
But there is something profound about knowing that God moves with us through these things, and that's really, really important. Today I want to talk about this, walking through guilt and shame. Uh, I suspect from here on out I'll get real quiet, uh, and that's okay. Uh, I'm, I've been known to talk to myself, and that'll be fine. But there are some things that I want you to listen to as we move through this story together, because uh, we're just going to look at a story uh, in the Gospel of John, and I'll set it up for you in just a second. But if you have a Bible, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I don't know why I aimed this at the screen, because there's nothing in that screen. <laughs> it's just fabric. I don't know what it is about aiming this at the screen. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read the whole text to you, and you can follow along, and then we'll get into a couple of things here. Starting with verse 2, actually. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. At, uh, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. God, as we engage with this story today, I pray that you uh, speak to us, that you encourage us, that you give us something to hold on to today. And God, as we process what's happening, not just in this story, but in our lives, we just pray for strength and courage and we pray that this is good news today. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Now, this story has got its own story. It wasn't, it's not in the oldest texts of John's gospel, these ancient manuscripts that we have of John's gospel. It's not, it's not there. And it's had a hard time getting into what we call our Bible. And it's been, uh, in fact, I think the Greek text didn't get it until almost the year 900, so it, it's sort of not there for a long time. And when it did get in, it was in odd places. Some versions, some ancient texts have this story at the very end of John's gospel. Some versions have it in Luke's gospel. Uh, it's just, it just ha it's not a hard time finding a place. And the problem has been, the, it, at least in John's, it ends, it ends up in John's gospel here in chapter 8, in most of our modern Bibles, that's where it is. But it's had a hard time finding a home. It's been kind of this wandering, homeless story, probably because it wasn't written by John. There's some language issues there, some things that don't match up to John, but they got to put it somewhere. There was this free-floating story, this tradition about Jesus and this woman and this situation that took place in the temple, and it had been circulating, so it's a powerful story. And so they have to find a home for it. So this is a sort of a strange, it's got its own strange story of finding its place. It's stuck here because of what takes place before it and after it. There's this uh, couple of statements on either end about Jesus uh, not judging anyone. If you move down into verse um, 
15 in chapter 8. You can sort of see where it picks up. And so it fits nicely in John's gospel here, but it wasn't originally here. It's, again, just this story that's circulating around. Uh, but the reason it ends up in our text, the reason it's in our Bible is because when you read a story like this, anyone who's read the gospels themselves will say, this sounds exactly like something Jesus would do. This is a very Jesus moment. This is a very Jesus experience. And so there's something to be said for that. And we'll look at this together, uh, just really section by section. So if you will, let's do that. Here we go. I'm going to read it again. How's that? But just in pieces. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So Jesus has a following. This is very simple. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, the Greek there, which I know you're all interested in, is in the act. So this isn't like, we caught her a year ago and we paid her some money to come do this thing with us at this point. They caught her in the act. So it's quite embarrassing. And placing her, you don't think that's embarrassing? Okay. <laughs> placing her in the midst, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? Now, a couple of things here. In verse uh, 6, it says, they said this to test him. So the writer gives us a picture of why this story is taking place in, in, at all. Because if you're, if you're reading it, if you're following it along at any uh, level of comprehension, you've got to be asking yourself, well, where's the dude? Has anybody asked that question yet? We caught the woman. Now, I'm I'm just, I'm thinking it takes a couple of people for this act to take place. And so they're not like entirely smart with the situation, but there's no man there. And so you've got to be, the reader has to be asking, and Jesus has to be thinking, these guys are idiots. But where, where is the man? Where's the, other, where's the other person involved in this act? So they just bring the woman. And if she's caught in the act, I'm assuming that she's not well clothed, that she's not, uh, she's not really presentable, or at least she's super embarrassed. Would you be super embarrassed? Of course you would. And they throw her in front of Jesus, and there's these people standing there saying, hey, listen, Jesus, the law of Moses says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? And they said this, the writer says, to test him, to bring some charge against him. So why do they do this? Well, because Jesus well, we can't read their hearts and minds, but there's some things that we can possibly put together. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is well known for being, um, I don't want to say very uh, lenient with people, but certainly very gracious with people, teaching a lot about forgiveness. Jesus had taught a great deal about forgiveness and grace and mercy. And he was also very comfortable with the fallen. We talked last week about the church should be a sanctuary for the fallen because failure isn't going anywhere, right? It's going to keep happening. And so happy is the church that makes itself a sanctuary for the fallen. And this is simply not just a nice way of saying something. It's, it's, it's what Jesus was like with the fallen. They were very comfortable around him and he was known to be comfortable with them. And maybe this is, maybe this is creating some fear among them. Maybe this isn't what they want to hear or see from Jesus. I don't know. The writer doesn't tell us. But they feel the need to test him. They feel the need to push him to find some tripwire that he might uh, trip over. And so it's a, very interesting, it's a very interesting scene. But verse 7, 
uh, or sorry, at the end of verse 6, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. His first response in this experience is silence and art, I guess. I don't know what he's drawing on the ground. Maybe all their names and drawing the no sign through their names. I don't know. <laughs> but he leans down and he, he's silent. And you know what silence is in the midst of a confrontation? Wisdom. That's wisdom. Meekness, control. Silence is that thing that none of us are good at when someone confronts us, right? I'm always quick to say, oh, well, wait. But Jesus is just very quiet. And he leans down. He's wasting their time. He's drawing something or writing something in the sand. I've heard entire sermons on what he was writing, which I find comical because uh, the writer doesn't even tell us. But man, oh man, the ideas of what he was writing. Um, so all of their sins, he's writing all of their sins or he's, I don't know. So he's quiet, he's silent, he paces himself and he scribbles on the ground into the sand and they continue to ask him, it says. So they're bothering him, they're badgering him, give us an answer. And so he said to them, this thing that we love that Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. This is what we say, not when that's what we should do, but we say that when people are confronting us, right? Why are you confronting me? You, you, th- you who are without sin, you should throw the first stone, right? We use that when we're getting confronted with something. But Jesus is actually putting this challenge towards them who were trying to be judgmental. This is actually a statement for the judgmental and not those. He doesn't really talk to the woman yet. We'll get to that shortly. And so he just puts the challenge out there, fine, throw away. But here's the the requirement is that you are guiltless, that there is no sin in your life. And then if that's you, you can throw the first stone. You can throw it. Go ahead and get a good aim throw it at her. I don't, want to, I don't want her to suffer. But you, the requirement is that you are flawless as a person. It's, very, it's a very high bar for this. Now, just a couple of things. And I'm inserting my own editorial here, but there may be some ground. I think the men are afraid of Jesus. That's all I'll say about that. I think there's something frightening about how gracious he is. But I also know for certain that the woman is very afraid. That doesn't take much work. You can already assume this. She's afraid of everything at this point. She's mostly afraid for her life. But she's probably also afraid for all of the relationships that she has. She's afraid that she will die. But she's also afraid thinking about the life that she's lived. We don't know anything about this woman other than they caught her in the act of adultery. And they threw her in front of Jesus and said, now what? And so she's very scared. But what I find so intriguing is that Jesus stands there too, but he is very unafraid and in some ways very undisturbed by the men who have brought her to him. He stands there undisturbed by their hearts and undisturbed by the woman's station. He doesn't, she's she's not even a factor in the story yet in terms of 
what he's saying. But I will say that Jesus is probably getting angry. Jesus was known to get angry. And it has to do with this spirit of judgment that's taking place. Judgment, by the way, is an act of separation. When we judge, we draw lines between us and we say, basically, I'm good and those people are bad. Are you with me on that? When we were getting married, we'll just take a break here. Right before we got married, we took premarital counseling because you get like $20 off on your license. It's true. When I'm doing weddings, people are like, can you do the counseling? I'm like, I know you want the discount, right? So I just send them a couple of articles and say, good luck. But, uh, but when we were getting married, and we went through counseling and we, we actually went to like a real psychologist, not a pastor, you know. Uh, <laughs> right, Mickey? We went to like, we went to the, I, let me just, t- we went to a professor of psychology who, by the way, wrote, this, is, this has nothing to do with the woman calling adultery, but he wrote a book because he was an archer, which was, was not cool in the 90s. It's cool now that Lord of the Rings came out, but he was an archer and uh, he was very good and he wrote the book that the Olympian team used, like the psychology of archery, which we tried to read it and I was like, I don't get anything about this, but, but anyway, he was a pretty good psychologist, so he, but he gave us this one test that we had to like, um, it ended up graphing a square on a page. And the size of the square was, let me see if I can say this right. However, whatever the size of the square was, that's the window through which you saw and understood the world. Okay? So the larger your window, the more you were just like, yeah, whatever, life is cool, you know? The smaller your window, what you were more, uh, you had a propensity to point fingers at the world, right? So he puts the two pages on the table, and he's like, well, this one's yours, and this one's Mickey's. And I, my whole page was a window, because I was just like, hey, you know? <laughs> and uh, Mickey's was like just the four dots <laughs> that formed the square, right? Am I right? Totally right. And, and so for 21 years, it's, it is larger now. She's moved a couple of dots. But for 21 years, like, that's the thing we've had to navigate. Like, somebody will say something or do something, and I'm just like, it's cool. And she's like, you know, down with them. You know, and I'm like, okay, let's just, let's just pull it up a little bit, you know. <laughs> I'm in trouble later. Oh, no, no. She loves that. She, that's the thing about the small window person. They love that, you know? They love that. So, it's a, but I might be. I'll give you a call. We'll go see that Rich Robinson show. So, all right. All right. So, at any rate, um, Kyle's getting coffee. Kyle's back, everybody. Kyle, Kyle Marshall. Yeah, yeah. So, can't get up in my service. So, All right. So regardless of how large or small your window is through which you see the world, all of us, all of us have the tendency within us to judge others. And when we judge others, we basically say, they're less than me. 
or I'm greater than they are. And Jesus, this is so interesting, Jesus, it seems, it appears by his own identity, cannot cast judgment. There's this very interesting uh, phrase right after the verse we all are familiar with. In John 3.16, the writer says, and you know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know that? 17 is better. I mean, I don't want to say something, but 17 is better. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Do you hear that? But in order that the world might be saved through him. It's almost as if the very station of Jesus is not privileged to cast judgment in this way. That he's forced himself within, his, within this incarnation God made man to keep condemnation at bay. Because when we judge, we isolate. Judgment is just isolation. It puts people in isolation. And guilt and shame stand guard. And what's really odd to imagine in this story is that Jesus not only loved this woman, that's what you think of when you read the story, he loved this woman, but he also loved these men. This is the thing that's so odd about Jesus. Jesus loves me the most, but he loves you the most too. And he loves you the most and everybody the most. It's this very interesting thing. But then he says that, that wonderful line, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And at once he bent down and wrote on the ground again, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? She never has a name. Isn't that interesting? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. So Jesus clears the courtyard so that healing would have a chance. Now, this is something very important to imagine in your heads how this looks in your own life. But in this story, Jesus clears a way for healing. The thing that was preventing healing were all these men holding stones. It's a very tense situation. But Jesus subdues it and clears the way so that healing would have a chance. And he removed judgment so that new life could grow up through the cracks of the old life. And I think he continues to do this through the work of his spirit in our lives every day, these constantly removing old life so that new life can grow. And he says to her, go and sin no more. See, we live new and changed lives because he loves us, not the other way around. This is like the nice challenge in the text. We live new and changed lives because he loves us, not the other way around. We don't change our lives so that he will love us. We live a new life because he does. And we have to be careful not to misinterpret this part of what he's saying 
this go and sin no more is just a small window into she did do something wrong. Jesus is not discounting that. We often miss that in the story. He's just not condemning her, which is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for. That in our sin and our destructive lives, we don't receive condemnation. We receive room. Jesus has cleared room so that there is that healing can take place and that he has given us all this directive. Hey, listen, go and don't do this anymore. That's for our benefit. If you keep stealing, if you keep sleeping around, if you keep getting drunk over and over and over again, it's never going to pay off. So that's for our benefit. It doesn't, it's not for God's benefit in that I'm going to start loving you less and less the more and more you do this. That's not what he's saying. Jesus doesn't want to see this woman in this situation again, right? We, no one does, and she doesn't want to be in that situation again. And so he says, you go and live a life different, live your life differently. And if we can, through God's grace, change our destructive behaviors, we are less likely to live with the fear of judgment and rejection and isolation. One of the great uh, thinkers, uh, Jean Venier, says this about this story. Feelings of guilt are like roadblocks. They prevent us from advancing on the road of faith and love. Jesus takes away these roadblocks and tells us, I do not condemn you. Forgiven, don't miss this, we are called to forgive and to liberate others from their prisons of guilt. All of us, all of us have stones that we carry in our pockets. We all have them. And we're all quite adept at using them. And then when we move through life, someone wrongs us, someone does, says something wrong, someone fails in front of us, whatever, it's very easy for me, it's very easy for all of us to reach in our pocket and grab that stone and point out the holes in people's lives. We all have these stones. Um, I think the road to hell is paved in the comments section on the internet. <laughs> Are you with me on that? I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's just like, wow. Uh, and that you don't even know the person, you know, and yet you so assuredly throw a stone at a very particular thing and all you're getting is a small view of the story of this person's life. All of us are good at throwing stones, myself included. But if we're all honest, you would say that you're good at that too. So I think this story has a couple of applications for us. I think number one, it's that we should, we should find ways to not reach for these stones as quickly as we do. And to get to the point where maybe we never reach for them at all. The church, and maybe you grew up this way in a church environment, the church was very good at using guilt and shame to get you to live a certain way. Anybody grew up in a, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you grew up in a church like that where guilt and shame was like part of, we got a hand raised, we got another hand, I see that hand, okay, good. Uh, we're all there. Maybe you grew up in a church environment where the number one way 
that the leadership, the pastors, your Sunday school teachers, and the people in general got you to be a good Christian was through guilt and shame. And for that, it's, it, I'm sorry, it's a terrible, it's a terrible way to grow up in a, in a religious setting. But I can tell you that all of that is based on fear. There's a fear among the leadership that God would be too gracious with you. I don't know why that is. People who are smarter than me in the, in the mind, the working of the mind, might have an answer for that. But it is such the case that when there, where there is more grace, there is more fear among people. And I don't know why that is, but it is the, it is the way it is. And maybe this is what frustrated people with Jesus. So if you grew up in a situation like that, I, not only do we say we are sorry for that, but we pray that you find something different either here or elsewhere, where in your church experience what you feel is not guilt and shame, but you feel as though the Spirit has removed judgment so that you may heal. And perhaps this place is a place of healing for you. Perhaps this is a place where you can sit still for a while and be patched up from all the injuries that you've incurred religiously through the years. Feelings of guilt, again, are like roadblocks. They keep us from progressing and advancing on the road of faith and love. But as he says, Jesus takes that away and says, I don't condemn you. I don't condone. See, that's the thing but I don't condemn. What you're doing is destructive. But Jesus seems to know that we already know that. Does that make sense? All of us know that. We know that what we do in certain situations is not good. We don't need to hear that all the time from religious leaders. But there is this promise of, I won't condemn you in those moments, but I will make a way for you to heal, to get better. And then in the process, we're called to be the same towards others, to liberate others from their prisons of guilt. One more Jean Venier quote, and then I want to close uh, and we'll set up for communion. Again, he's writing this in relation to this story, but he says, I can see myself in myself this fear of being seen as bad or having done something wrong, the fear of being rejected, pushed down into the depths of loneliness, our greatest need is to feel that we have value, are worthy, and can do beautiful things. Amen? That's our greatest need, that we have value, that we matter. And so I think for us, and I just love this part of the story, where the writer gives us this image of the people walking away after Jesus says, fine, throw the stone, but you've got to be sinless. And then it says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And then, of course, implied the younger ones left later. Why is that? Because the older ones, they're just doing the quick assessment. They're like, they've been alive longer. They've, had more, they've, done, they've done things wrong for longer. The younger ones are still holding on to, and maybe you do this if you're young, the younger ones are still holding on to the flawed 
self-perception that they're perfect. Sorry, but you're not. Neither are, either are we, the older ones. But the older ones leave first as if to say it's very evident to them. You know, that they've lived, they've had more years on the, on the earth. They've had more problems that they've had to walk through. They've had more, uh, they've made more mistakes. They've done more things wrong. The younger ones are still like, well, maybe nobody knows. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can just still look a certain way and they'll think I'm fine. But one by one, beginning with the older ones, they leave. And you got to imagine that as they leave, they drop their stones. Now, I'm inserting that image into the story, but I got to think they don't take the stones with them. What do they need those for? So let me close with this. In the old days, in the old neighborhoods, and in fact, where we live, there's a church across the street or down the street on the corner that still has the bells. You know the church bells? I think they're kind of cool. And when you go into like certain college campuses, they'll ring them which I don't know why, but they'll ring them. But uh, I kind of like the sound of the bells. It usually means top of the hour or worship is about to start or whatever. Uh, and again, it's, it reminds us of church gatherings and so on. But I don't know, maybe the church bells are a trigger warning at this point. It brings up bad memories of, you know, being in a religious environment that was that use guilt and shame as its number one discipling tool. And so maybe the new sound, maybe the new church bell is not the sound of the bells, but I just love, I just love the image and the, and the, the audible, just the... As Jesus says, if you're without sin, you cast the first stone, and just one by one... That young person looking at it. That's a good sound, is it? Church is starting. You don't have to come in here with, you don't have to look great. I had a person text me three weeks ago and say, hey, I'm not going to make it today. I'm really hungover. I said, we start at 11. <laughs> we'll have aspirin. Amen. Let me close with this Romans 8. Because it sounds like the children are done. And the Falcons are about to start. We got in the car this morning and Alden was like, you know what day it is? And his little sister was like, it's church day. And he looks at her, he's like, it's rise up day. That's what he said. <laughs> so they're back and forth for three exits. Like, it's church day. It's rise up day. It's church day. It's rise up day. All right. Let me close with this encouraging thing. And if you'll stand and then Jeff will come and get us ready for communion. Romans 8, verses 37, 38, and 39. 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. And the Greek there means all creation. All will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. When you leave today, you'll get a stone. We've written the word grace on it. Keep that. It's this juxtaposition. Um, the stones represent, they represent the stones that weren't thrown at the adulteress. And the irony is the word grace on the thing that could have been used as a weapon of death. So make sure you take one of those today and stick it somewhere where you'll see it over the next few weeks. And remember this last part of this verse, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let me pray, and then Jeff will get us ready for communion. God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for, uh, thank you for the life that's outside these walls right now and just the people coming in to enjoy themselves. God, thank you that we can meet in this place we thank you that, um, that, it's, that we're here today then it, it, without much of a hitch and that we could celebrate your grace and mercy today. God, keep us in check as we want to reach in and grab guilt and shame and use that on other people. I do that. We all do that. And God, help us to be silent in those situations, to be gracious that when people fail us, that we are quick to listen and slow to speak. And that God, that when we fail others, when we fail you, when it feels like people have dragged us out into the public square and thrown us in front of you and said, down with that person, that we will remember this story and that we will know that you love us no matter what and that you will work to clear the space of judgment so that healing can take place. Be with us as a church family as we try to ring the bells of grace so that when we're in this place together, that we are most certain of your love for us. And God, when your presence feels more like an absence because we're covered and weighed down in guilt and shame, you'll encourage us in some way. And as we take communion in just a moment, let it remind us that even just to line up for the bread and the juices to admit that we need you. And at the same time, it's a joyous occasion, this reminder that you love us. And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.